Apotheosis, the second podcast from the crew at Code Punk, where we talk about cyberspace, cyberculture, and cyberpunk. You can go to codepunk.io to read our articles and also check out our other podcast, the self-titled Code Punk Podcast, hosted by myself and co-host Bill Ahern. You can also find that podcast in your favorite podcast application, as well as on YouTube, since all recent episodes are recorded in virtual reality. You can blame Ben Brown for this one. I mentioned Ben in the previous Apotheosis post. He's a current Microsoft engineer that works on the Bot Framework Composer, but made a name for himself in technology and the Austin tech scene for a variety of applications and companies, but most notably for his work on BotKit, which Microsoft subsequently purchased, and I suspect that was a little bit more of an aqua hire than anything else, and they made the BotKit a part of the Bot Framework. Ben and I are only about a year apart in age. We both grew up with similar interests and managed to connect late in life over our work in chatbots because I'm still a Microsoft AI MVP, specifically for the bot framework community contributions that I've done. And we both have a love for Max Hedrum, oddly enough. While I was busy putting the research together for a discussion on Gopher and Gemini, Ben was busy building out a version of the finger protocol that limited the security risk and added a web interface for updating the text that you would traditionally put in your plan or your project file. Welcome to Happy Netbot. So now we'll return to Happy Netbot in a little bit because it's a good lesson in the history of social software. But if you weren't jacking into Unix machines in the 80s, you might be wondering what the finger protocol actually is, or maybe you just need a quick refresher. So on a Unix-based system, prior to the advent of the finger command, information on logged-in users was pretty much relegated to using the who command. On a Linux laptop currently, the result would simply give you the user's name and their date of logged in. This really doesn't provide you with a bunch of information, just that logged in information. But in 1971, Les Ernest wrote the finger program to provide more relevant information. If I run the finger program on my computer, I actually get a little bit more contextual information login, name, login time. Maybe I have an office or an office phone. Of course, mine doesn't list because I don't input that on my computer. Now, if I finger the user directly, I'll actually get even more information. I get the login name. I get the real name. I get the home directory, the shell that's being used, and it'll specifically tell me if I have Unix-style mail in my spool or if I have a plan from the plan file. Now, if I actually had information in a plan file in my home directory, and of course that's a .plan file, the name of the file will be .plan, it would look a little more contextual. It'll have a little bit more information because essentially whatever I type inside of the plan file will then show up on the screen when somebody fingers my username. The finger program is distinct but related to the finger protocol. The protocol is a daemon exposed to the network that typically runs on port 79. The finger program is a client for this protocol. When a finger request is made, it contacts the corresponding server or the network device, which receives the request, processes the query, and it responds. The connection between a client and protocol is then closed. This protocol and process was used to provide identifying information, like with the examples that I talked about. Typically, it was meant for coworker communication and information, hence the office phone information. 
It can include other information like email address, name, logged on time, and of course that .plan file could contain more verbose exposition on just about anything. Typically it was used for humor, but don't discount the fact that it was often used for regular status updates in the same manner as microblogging today. The problem with Finger was that as networks and the internet grew, the information supplied by the command could conceivably be used for social engineering attacks during the early days of hacking. As a result, it was decided that it was a security risk. Of course, Finger, or more accurately, the Finger Damon, had a starring role in the drama surrounding the infamous Morris Worm in 1988. Robert Tappan Morris, whose father, Robert Morris, was a well-known cryptographer who worked for Bell Labs and then eventually the National Security Agency, began working on a computer worm while a graduate student at Cornell University. Morris claimed that his original intention was to bring attention to security weaknesses in computers and computer networks. The eventually named Morris Worm exploited multiple vulnerabilities in Unix-based machines, specifically the DexVax running BSD. And one of the targeted components was a weakness in the finger daemon, causing a buffer overflow. Once on a machine, the virus would check if a copy of it already existed, and if so, it wouldn't replicate. However, trying to potentially outsmart system administrators who may attempt to fake the presence check, Morris had the virus replicate 14% of the time, regardless of if an infection was found to be present. This created a runaway replication process with multiple infections on a single machine, slowing the processing power to a crawl, not unsimilar to a denial-of-service attack, crashing a lot of machines. The aftermath of the Morse worm suggested anywhere from a few thousand to 60,000 computers were infected. Damages were pretty vague, though. Morris actually became the first person ever convicted under the Draconian Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. He was sentenced to three years probation and was fined several thousand dollars. Now, I'm no fan of security expert Clifford Stoll, but in, in writing about the Morris worm in his book, he was correct in his assessment that if all the systems on the ARPANET had ran Berkeley Unix, the virus would have disabled all 50,000 of them. So Stoll was talking about the dangers of monoculture and how reliance on one specific technology or way of doing things could result in long-term and devastating damages when a major event occurs. Monoculture is often seen as a danger in agriculture, where monocultural farming has resulted in reduced varieties in produce. Then a blight hits and wipes out the entire crop because it targeted that specific variety. Bananas in particular have been experiencing this and you'll often read news stories about it. In technology, and as we previously discussed, monoculture has emerged in the browser wars, in desktop software, in internet protocols. You know, I mentioned before that as e-commerce became the fundamental rallying cry of the dot-com boom, those attempting to make money off the internet didn't have time for competing protocols. The web served the need for design-oriented marketing, so all the investment went there. We lost the other protocols to the junk piles of academic experimentation, and with that loss, prostrated ourselves at the feet of advertising and marketing. And yes, I did just quote my own self with that. Those that work in open source 
reinventing the wheel, so to speak, are doing so out of rejection of the monoculture that surrounds us currently. With Happy Netbox, Ben Brown has essentially reintroduced us to the original status message. We often forget that most things around us aren't new. They're just modern interpretations of older ideas, usually twisted so that marketing and advertising can get a dollar out of it. Don't believe me? First, we had the finger protocol. But tell me, how different are status updates from the away messages of AOL Instant Messenger? AOL's Instant Messenger let you create custom away messages that could even include rich text, color, and formatting. During the early days of the mid-aughts, teenagers were using away messages to give status updates, detail drama, tell jokes, and over-communicate. But at this time, Friendster was cratering while MySpace was surging, and every advertising company around was trying to figure out how to turn these emerging social networks into revenue-generating businesses. And, and they did. So maybe now we should take a look at that monoculture again and do something about it. So you can check out Ben Brown's Happy Netbox at happynetbox.com. Sign up for an account, update your finger plan, and then you can use the command line utility to finger that and other people in order to find information. Play around with it, have some fun.